0: Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to John Node, professional geologist with more than 20 years of experience and a history of working for large oil and gas companies such as Shell. We'll be talking about John Node's scientific article titled, Learning from Mining Applications to Unconventional Reservoirs. Some highlights include discussing how analyzing 3 b mines in person and provide a template for generating unconventional 3D models on the computer. We're rocking out today with John Node. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi John and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well thank you very much for inviting me. There's lots to share so I'm looking forward to a good discussion.
0: So in your study you compared production from the unconventional reservoirs with the mining industry. So what synergies do you see between the two industries?
1: Okay, well, both of these industries exploit subsurface reserves. Mining is much more hands-on, so it provides you with a really unique data set. It's almost like having a giant wellbore that you can walk inside and have a look at what's going on. Both of the industries try to assess volumes from limited data sets. And the nice thing about the mining is that you actually get to see what happens in real time almost as you advance with the mine and so you can test your theories and find out very quickly whether you're right or wrong and finally both of them handle structural complications and i think that's a, a key factor in mining is uh, handling the, the fractures and particularly the faults and faulted reserves and you can then apply that to uh, oil and gas as
0: well it's a good way of looking at it if you have the faults that you can see in front of you and use that as analogs for oil and gas it gives you a lot more data to work with, which is great. So the mines that you analyzed were the Portland Stone Mine in the United Kingdom and the St. Helena Gold Mine in South Africa, as well as the Palladium Mine in South Africa. So why did you choose these mines and what features make them unique?
1: It's funny because I don't actually think that those features make them unique. I think every mine has something to tell us because they all have basically a 3D model that you can pick apart and start mining into. So even open cast mines, one of the studies we did was on a, a gravel pit in uh, Ireland, where we went in and we watched them as they were advancing the faces and collecting the data. So any mine can help you. But the reason I chose these three particular mines is that I worked on two of them. So I was the geologist on the gold mine, and then I was an exploration geologist, and then we shaft sunk a platinum mine. So that was the platinum mine. And then finally, the mine in Portland in the UK, a friend of mine actually is the manager there. So he gave us pretty much free access. So we went and did a lot of uh, study on the mine itself and visited there on several field trips as well.
0: So these are mines that you've been to, you've worked, you're knowledgeable about, and they made good analogues for your study because they're ones that you knew really well.
1: And, and secretly, I'm half in love with them because it's a little bit like if you work on your own field. If you work on your own mine, then it becomes a bit of you as well.
0: (laughs) It's a a little baby project, right? (laughs) So the mining in Portland, UK mines the Portland stone, which is the stone used to build buildings such as St. Paul's Cathedral. The open pit quarries were really common in the 17th century. And since 2017, they've switched more to the underground mines. And they had to invest heavily in new mining technology in order to do this. What kind of similarities do you see between this transformation in mining and what's happening in unconventionals right now?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's worth saying is that the reason they went underground, it was for environmental reasons, but also the the rock is worth so much money. So if you have a block that's about the size of an SUV, that's worth anywhere between 10 and 15,000 pounds, so nearly $30,000. So The actual value of the stone is huge. So that meant that they could afford to use these advanced technologies. So the technologies that they've used is much more in terms of the surveying and that side of things, which also applies to oil and gas, and also in the cutting technologies that they're using. So they're not blasting. They're basically using different rock saws and things like that. And the nice thing about those rock saws is that when I go in underground and look at the faces that they're they're mining, you can just see these beautiful cuts through the stone and get some really nice ideas what's happening with the geology.
0: It's a great comparison. An SUV is worth about $30,000 in the Portland stone, very similar to the cost of an SUV. So great way to remember that. Some of the things you saw in the Portland mine were geologic challenges. What were these?
1: Okay, well, when, when you go into the mine, one of the things that you notice immediately is that you have these giant fractures. And I mean, these are fractures that you can actually walk inside. If you imagine a piece of cheese, it's like they've take, taken this big lump of limestone and they like a piece of cheese. If you bend it and you bend the sides of the piece of cheese, then what you'll see is that cracks start developing in the top of the cheese. And that's exactly what happens in this mine. So you've got this lovely anticlinal system and these limestone fractures have just literally opened up in a V-shaped that you can walk inside. So that's a huge challenge for the mining and they try and keep all of these fractures in the pillars. And the nice thing about that is that it allows the geologists then go in and look at the behavior of these fractures because you can literally go and stand inside the fracture and look at the fracture planes. Other challenges, well, there's dissolution pathways through there, so there's quite a lot of cave systems inside. And this is a good analog for thief zones or high perm conduits that you might see in the subsurface. And then there's also patch reefs, and the patch reefs are typically very, very heavily cemented. So those are all almost like baffles or barriers to flow that you would see in in a more oil and gas situation. And then finally, a lot of the crossbeds that you see in the limestone have provided conduits for groundwater, and and they've actually deposited silica along these crossbeds. So you end up with silica stripes in your limestone, and that would also act as a baffle in the subsurface. So that's a very nice analog for something like lateral accretion surfaces, inclined heterolithic stratification, where you've got interbeds of muds and sands, although in this case, the interbeds are limestones and flints.
0: With it being a limestone, was it deposited as a reef, or what was the depositional environment?
1: It's mainly lagoonal, and you, you do see some giant ammonites in there, so the ammonites get up to about five feet across, which is just unbelievable, and then there you get these tree Roots and tree trunks. They've had algae growing around them in these lagoons, and you end up with these giant donuts. So the tree itself is eroded away and rotted. You've got a donut around it, which is made up of algal material. And you can see these at a place called Lulworth Cove on in, on the Dorset coast. So this is all part of the the World Heritage Site in Dorset. And yeah, the geology is absolutely stunning. So it's mainly lagoon and lagoonal and terrestrial that you're looking at in those uh, in the Portland Stone. Although the lower part of the Portland Stone is more marine in character. So you're basically seeing a regressive uh, s- s- series of rocks as you go up through the through the, what they're mining.
0: It sounds like really interesting geology. What are your thoughts on the caves? How did those form?
1: So I think those are relatively recent. So the groundwater was percolating through from the surface and actually ero- eroding and, and dissolving out the limestone, and then just percolating out through the cliffs at the side of uh, the Isle of Portland. And Portland is actually, the island is completely separate from the mainland. But it's connected by a thing called a Tombolo, which is a, a glacial beach, which was uh, pushed up by ice back in the Ice Age. And that just connects the Isle of Portland to the mainland.
0: So lots going on geologically there. Yeah. Another mine that you looked at was the St. Helena Gold Mine, and it's targeting the leader reef, which was deposited not as a lagoon, but as alluvial fans in braided rivers. So this contains conglomerate and quartzite, and you had a really good diagram in your paper and presentation that showed the process of how you turn oil into gold. Can you walk everyone through how gold forms?
1: Yeah, it sounds like a crazy idea, but first of all, these these rocks are 2.9 billion years old. So this has got to be one of the oldest oil deposits in the world. The model is, and you had these little uh, algal bodies living inside the the braided rivers so there's algae in the braided rivers and they are actually producing enough hydrocarbons enough bitumens to form some kind of oil reservoir so you have the braided rivers there with the porosity in them then you start migrating this bitumen from these algal features and the algal features you can actually see on on sem if you look at the carbon that's formed you can see the algal structures within there so it's definitely organic the um oil was, has migrated into that porosity. And then over the next 2.9 billion years, which is a nice long time, it's been metamorphosed. So your oil has completely turned into carbon. And you literally have solid carbon. So you either have carbon seams or you have little fly speck carbon, so little carbon dots within this reservoir. I we'll call it a reservoir for now. So carbon has a, a real affinity for gold. And uh, I, I'll give you an example of the affinity for gold my uh, cousin was working on a mine in South Africa where they were using garden sprinklers to sprinkle cyanide solution onto ore body. So onto the the gold ore and then collecting the cyanide solution which which was enriched by gold and then passing it through a carbon column. So the carbon column then sucks the gold out of the, the cyanide and creates an amalgam. So you end up with a gold enriched carbon that you can then smelt. So here we have our reservoir, which is now full of carbon And then you start putting the groundwater through there, and the groundwater has just very slightly elevated amounts of gold in it. And so the gold starts attaching itself to the carbon. So, the the simple way of putting it is that you start off with porosity, you fill the porosity with oil, you turn the oil into carbon, and then you push gold rich solution through there, and the gold attaches itself to the carbon. So, at the end of the day, the amount of gold that you have in your reservoir will be dependent on the amount of primary porosity. So, we were using gold values. From the underground mine to as a, as a kind of proxy for porosity and then making a three dimensional model based on that.
0: So the gold fills in where you initially have porosity, but then because it fills it, the places where porosity remains would almost be opposite, it sounds like. So you mentioned something about placing the horizontal well bores in the low porosity intervals. Is that why you do that? Is it because the gold has formed where there was originally prosty? Or what's the thought behind that?
1: Okay, so, so these rocks are relatively coarse-grained primarily. So they've been turned to quartzite over time. But if you consider them as a braided river reservoir, you're gonna produce from your reservoir and your porosity is typically pretty high in those settings. So if you look at the, some of the you know, the Prudhoe field, for example, which has a lot of braided River deposits, the average porosity is around 25%. So the idea of putting your horizontal wells in the lowest porosity areas is to maximize your sweep efficiency. So you look at your river deposits, which tend to fine up, so they'll, they'll be coarser grained at the base, lag deposits at the base so you put your well in at the very top of the river deposits and that maximizes the sweep so that ensures that you sweep the top part of the reservoir before you get any breakthrough and then if you have a more marine reservoir which is the the upper part of that succession in, in the gold mine is probably a, a little shore face deposit then that's going to be coarsening upwards so in, in that deposit you would put your well at the base so in the finer grained material the not so so high quality reservoir so that you can also maximize sweep in that reservoir So we're using these three-dimensional reservoir models that we built based on the gold data to determine where the, the almost the worst place is to put our wells to maximize sweep efficiency.
0: So you used 3D models to build out the reservoir and determine the best spots, which is very similar to what you do in unconventional reservoirs. What kind of similarities did you see between the 3D modeling in the two different types of industry? That's
1: a good question. In a mine, you have almost hundred percent data set. So the samplers are going through, and they're collecting data very closely spaced, and you and you have that data set sitting there. And your model is very ground truth. Whereas in oil and gas, it's all extrapolation. So there's way more uncertainty. So the nice thing to do is to take your templates from the mining. So you build your templates from the mining for different kinds of reservoirs. So for shore faces, for mouth bars, for deltas, you take the mining data, and then you can actually use that as a template to drive your three-dimensional modeling within Petrel or whichever modeling system you're using.
0: I like that thought. So you just use it as a template, a bit of a guide to fill in the gaps that you have in unconventional reservoirs here in Canada or elsewhere around the world. So great to think of it that way as just a template and a guide to use. One way to fill in the gaps is to use Krieging. And Krieging uses a weighted average of neighboring samples to estimate unknowns at given locations. And you can optimize these weightings using a variogram. You talked about different characteristics of a variogram and how it can be used to highlight the key data points. What are some of the thoughts around variograms here?
1: OK, so so uh, Krieging was actually invented by a guy called Darnie Krieg in South Africa. And he did it to interpolate between scattered values that you'd have from drilling exploration wells in mining. And it's equally good to use that for oil and gas as well. So variograms are a way of quantifying. They're a graphical representation of the roughness or the kind of variability of a data set. So if if you have four or five wells in a field with different values in them for either your oil proportion or your gold, for example, then the variogram has a way of quantifying what that variability is across the field. So the four main characteristics are the range. So the distance between samples where They don't affect each other, so the the further apart two samples are, the less chance that the values in them are related. So if you have two porosity values two kilometers apart, then they're unlikely to be related. But if you have two porosity values that are two meters apart, then they're very likely to be related. The sill is where your graph levels off. That's the point at which that you start seeing no correlation between pairs of samples. So that ties into the range as well. The nugget is the difference that you expect between adjacent samples. So let's say that you have your porosity values, your porosity values will not all be exactly 25%. They're, they might be, some will be 20%, some will be 30%. So you'll have a small range even with samples adjacent to one another. So that's called the nugget effect. What you see is that in gold mines, obviously that nugget effect, that's where the name came from, but it's it's pretty high, the variability, whereas in Classic reservoirs, for example, is quite low. And then finally, it's very important that you consider the azimuth. So you consider the, the orientation that you're going to build your model. Obviously, if you're looking at channel deposits, then you look at the direction that your channels are running in towards the coast. And you'll get a completely different interpolation if you try and interpolate at right angles to the channel orientation to if you, if you do it at the same orientation as the channel. So very important to consider the trend that your properties are going to have related to the depositional setting.
0: And you can really tweak those bariograms to make sure the trend is followed properly within your geo model. And I guess if you took templates from mines where maybe it was a channel setting and you took a look at what the four parameters were set to, it might give you a good idea of what to set them to in a channel setting in, say, Western Canada. an Analog for you of what to set it at if you have sparse data, hey?
1: Yes, exactly. And, and in fact, we have used outcrop data and outcrop orientations for channels And then looked at the variability in those those channel direction the channels are flowing and what the kind of range of azimuths are, and then applied that in the subsurface. So you can use outcrop or mining data to help you to determine what range you should put on your azimuths for your your channel directions, or indeed your your shore face orientations as well.
0: Exactly. A bit of a check to make sure that what you're using is geologically reasonable, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that carbonates and plastics, you would model them very differently. What were some of the main differences that you saw between them?
1: Okay, so plastics when you look at them, they are they're generally more predictable. If we go to a clastic setting like a beach or a shore face or a channel, walking across the channel or walking down the shore face into the deeper sea, you can pretty much predict the properties are going to gradually get worse and worse as you go from onshore to offshore. And in a channel, that you're going to have a change when you go from the point bar to the cut cut bank, for example, in a meandering channel. If you go to carbonates, what you see is that. In carbonate systems, there's huge variability at a very small scale. So if you imagine a, a, a reefal setting and you're in, in, swimming around in Great Barrier Reef, then you can see there's a reef here, there's a flat area there, so that there's very local variability at, at a very small scale. So with carbonates, there may be large-scale trends, like in a platform carbonate, but the small scale is very variable, whereas the small scale in clastic, it should be pretty consistent.
0: Another thing that you look for in the modeling is fractures. And you mentioned when you were speaking earlier that uh, mines are really nice because you can visually see the fractures and where they are. So one of the things in modeling is that you'd need a dual porosity model of matrix versus fractures. And you had a nice workflow of how to model these fractures. Can you walk us through what your process is here?
1: Basically, it's it's not that complicated, but... uh... You start building your fracture model based on mine data and uh, a nice example of, of this is uh, hurricane energy they're working in west of shetland and they're working on producing oil from basement so they're producing it from tonalites so they were trying to find a, a way of looking at tonalite systems to see what the fractures were doing so they went to sweden where they were putting a, a eight kilometer long tunnel through tonalites and they literally took that tunnel apart so they they contributed to the cost of the tunnel just to be able to get in there and measure the fractures every 20 centimeters right the way through the tunnel so they ended up with this beautiful fracture model and the behavior of the tonalite that they were then able to apply to their reservoir that's sitting somewhere two two and a half kilometers below the seabed somewhere in the west of shetlands so yeah start off with mine data and then you you build a model first from your mine data And then you sample that model to populate your reservoir. So you take the data that you collect from the mine, and you'd start using that to populate a computer model, like a three-dimensional fracture model. And then finally, you can use a template to concentrate the fractures around the faults. Because obviously, where you have the large faults, you get these really nice fracture swarms around them, which are usually 1 to 300 meters away from the faults themselves. And so they're going to be more productive. And I just wanted to share one example, the La Paz field in Venezuela. One well produced 58 million barrels. And the reason was that that well penetrated right into the middle of the fracture swarm around the master fault in the middle of the field. So if you get your modeling right, then you can start predicting where you're going to see the really excellent performance from some of the wells.
0: Yeah, that's a huge well that they had there. And it's not often that you get to see how intense the fractures are in your faults. And it's a good point that the closer to the fault you are, the more intense the fractures are and the further away you get, the more they'll fade out and having a bit of a visual example of how quickly that changes would be such a advantage in that area. Another place that you take a look at the fracking was Norman Warpinski, did a lot of work on it using a colored propant, which sounds really neat. Can you tell me a little bit about this?
1: Yeah, so, so he, he worked for a company called Pioneer and that he was a, a real innovator. And one of the ideas he had was that when they were doing uh, work in coal mines, so in coal mines, they tend to do some natural fracking. And, and there's two reasons, either for CBM, so coal methane, or they're draining gas for safety reasons. And he thought, well, if they're going in and doing this fracking underground, why don't I just use a colored propant in there? And then when they start the mining process again, after they've done the fracking, we can go in and see how the fracks behave. So he went in and he was able to literally track these little yellow fractures that were going through the rock and get an idea of what was happening with the fractures. And what he found was that they would usually cross mineralized zones by the shortest path, which is interesting. Wherever you had any strong horizontal planes or or horizontal bedding, the fractures would become T-shaped, so you'd actually lose a lot of the strength of your fractures along those horizontal planes. Where, Mm -hmm. Where there were clays, the vertical fractures would be blunted, so the fractures would tend to stop, even with a relatively thin clay seam, and he found... What's really cool is that when he was putting his fracs in, they were offset by natural fractures. So his frac would go across and it would hit a natural fracture and then the, the, the force would go along the fracture for a while and then break through again. So all of these were just work that he was able to see literally from hands on underground as it was being mined.
0: It sounds very similar to what we've seen in Western Canada, where if it's naturally fractured, Uh, the fracks work a bit better if there's too much clay it gums it up and it isn't as good and if there's lots of say a delta with lots of laminations then the fracks wind up going a lot more horizontal so this would be a really good comparison to say micro seismic or other methods that we use when you can't see underground hey
1: yeah well he was also one of the innovators of micro seismic so that this all kind of goes along in his ballpark so yeah great guy and worth reading some of his papers
0: yeah, that sounds great. I'll have to look them up. So another area you looked at was the Bush Felt Complex, and there were some geologic disruptions in there, such as dikes, faults and joints, pigmentoids, and domes and potholes. So you mentioned that faulting can be really disastrous to the horizontal wells, but the slumping and the potholes could actually enhance the production. Can you elaborate a little bit on these features and the disruptions that they wind up causing?
1: Yeah, so, so what was happening with the with these reservoirs is that you're getting this micro-faulting. So if you were tracking a chromatite seam, there were just half-meter faults, but just little faults. But those faults were enough to mean that if you were trying to mine out that one-meter interval, you'd have to increase your stoping distance. So you'd have to increase the amount of volume of the material that you took out by 50% to accommodate all of these small faults that were affecting the, the, the ore body. And so what that meant was they just diluted the, uh, the the ore too much. So you ended up with too much uh, spoil and uh, it made the mine uneconomic. economic And you couldn't have told that from surface. But the applications that that has for when we're looking at uh, reservoirs is that if you've got these small faults that are affecting the sands, if, they, if you have thin sand channels and you have faults that are one or two metres in, uh, in throw, then that can completely affect all of your um, juxtaposition. So you end up with sand against mud and then it will really affect what your production's doing. Now, the potholes are interesting because the, the potholes in, uh, obviously, in igneous Bushveld complex are a bit different to the potholes that we see. But scours that you see in your reservoir can actually be very helpful because they concentrate the porosity, they're usually the highest porosity areas. If you handle them correctly, then you can use them as oil production conduits as opposed to water breakthrough conduits. So if you, could, if you can identify where your scours are, your, um, the deeper areas in your river, uh, your thalwegs and that you can actually use them to your advantage when you're producing your uh, your oil from your reservoir.
0: So this is an igneous area, which can be used, lessons from that paint can be applied elsewhere, which is interesting, because you're not just taking a shore face and comparing it to another shore face. It's a completely different type of rock, and there's still lessons for channels and shore faces within that, which is really neat.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I, I call it a single-faceted approach. So everybody always thinks of oh, a multifaceted approach. We need a perfect analog. But actually, you only need one element, really, when you're looking at a reservoir analog. So in this case, for example, if you use the well bore. You have the wellbore running all the way down from surface, which is eight meters in diameter. And that gives you thousands and thousands of uh, cross-sections through all the fractures on the way down. So you have a a two-kilometer set of fractures, like an FMI diagram, but you can actually get your hands on it and start using that to predict how fractures behave with different rheologies. So yeah, so not everything has to be perfect in your analog, as long as something is there that can help you with what you're working on in the subsurface.
0: In a way, it's almost back to, what we learned in the original science classes right you just need one element that you're testing and if you're looking at fmi versus fractures in a well bore that's enough the rest of it can be completely different and just limit it to the one question that you really have so that's a a great reminder there some of the key takeaways that i really got from your paper was that slumping cementation faulting and the modeling methods that have been used in mining for years we can really apply to unconventional reservoirs here within Canada and elsewhere around the world. If somebody wanted to get more information on mines uh, to use as templates and analogues, where would you suggest they go to get this knowledge?
1: Um, well, obviously, it sounds silly, but the Google is a great place to start. And looking at mining, you'll find there's lots of mining papers. And, and I would not go for anything that's too complicated, because the ideas that have been used in mining for 50 years, 100 years, Often, almost untested in oil and gas. So there's plenty of information out there. I'd also look at some of the mining magazines to see what new technology is there that you could possibly be applied in oil and gas. Uh, the PTAC conference—I've always dreamt about going to it. Thirteen thousand attendees, when when it's not COVID times, of course. But thirteen thousand attendees at a conference, hundreds of talks, and you could really pick and choose which talks you went to so that you maximise the the use and the applicability to oil and gas, and then. If you can, I went to a, a mine last week in, in, Co- in Cochrane. I just phoned up this glacial deposit mine and I said, can I come and have a look at your glacial deposits? And they said, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Wear a bit of PPE, have some protective foot gear. And I just went out to the mine for half a day and had a look at all of the depositional settings in there, and it it was a beautiful analog to what's going on in the subsurface and in around the building sites of Calgary. So the mines are there, you have to be polite, and you always have to get permission first, but uh, I think there's no better way than getting your hands on the rocks.
0: Those are all great suggestions. I learned a lot from reading this and talking to you. Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to add?
1: Um, No, I just just do recommend to everybody that uh, try and consider mining as an alternative source of analogues for what you're working on with your subsurface oil and gas reservoirs.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much, John. That was really interesting. Thank you. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp@outlook.com. at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.